120 people gathered. They were told by Jesus to wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. So they waited. And then it came. It, oh, it's a wrong pronoun there. He came. The Holy Spirit came. And there was power and there was boldness that descended from above. Folks heard the life-giving message of Jesus. And lives were transformed. And the church was born. As the fledgling church in Jerusalem overcame its great challenge, its first great challenge, the arrest, the trial, and the attempted intimidation by the Sanhedrin. People responded to the apostles' witness in droves. Peter's first sermon brought 3,000 new believers into the kingdom. And his second sermon brought brought another 2,000. These new Christians were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were bold in their proclamation of Jesus Christ. They experienced community and were supernaturally generous with their material wealth. Maybe we could say that the church right here at this time became a little taste of heaven on earth. Then something, something happened that shocked every member of this movement. They This incident snapped them back into reality. And we're going to continue this amazing story as we finish up Acts chapter 4 and jump into Acts chapter 5. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, I ask you today to do something really, really special. You are a good, good Father. And we gather here to worship. We gather here to hear from you. And yet, Lord, we know this week has been odd. We try to wrestle with the different responsibilities we have. We shovel out from one snowstorm and enter this this frigid time. God, we're, we're just trying to make sense out of our world. So we gather here today to worship. We gather here to hear from you, to try to put aside some of the pressures and the scenarios and the situations, Lord, that seem to bog us down this week. Our souls are thirsty. We are hungry for your life-giving words. And Lord, we've been studying Acts. We've, We've opened up the book of Acts. Every word in this scripture, Lord, has been carefully chosen and preserved just for us. We would ask that your Holy Spirit would work in us today. 
We need the Spirit to work, Father. We do. And yet, some are not experiencing the Spirit. Maybe it's because they don't know you. Maybe they've never come to a place, God, where they've recognized your sacrificial death and the way that you paid our debt for sin and the way that our faith in you will give us life. Maybe that will happen today. We also know, Lord, there there are folks who aren't listening to you, that the Spirit dwells in their lives But for some reason, they've chosen to keep you outside. God, we we ask today that you would purify your church. Even now, show each one of us our rebellion, our indifference, our casual attitude toward obedience. I pray, dear God, that you would cleanse us, you would cleanse me from our selfish attitudes and prideful actions. I pray, Lord, that you would humble us today. We thank you, Father, for Jesus. We thank you for his love for us. We thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit something you promised would happen thousands of years ago, but, but now every believer has the Spirit living in them. We pray for this church, Lord. We pray for the church, your bride, to be bold and clear in witness. So, Father, as we open up this text, truthfully a hard text, truthfully, Lord, a text that Well, it's hard to explain in some ways. So, Lord, teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you turn your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 4? We're going to finish up starting at verse 32 and reading through 37. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on the screen behind me. But we're going to start there today. Acts 4, 32. All the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them because those who had owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi, and he came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. As I mentioned, for just a moment, there was a little bit of heaven on earth in this early church. The message of the resurrection was preached and it was realized. And God's blessing was upon these new believers. But let me remind you that God's blessing had nothing to do with circumstances. 
Times were hard at this moment. Some had been imprisoned. There were threats. And the economic stability was paying its toll. But this group of believers, this church, this infant church, they were walking in the Spirit, enjoying God, and enjoying each other. The body was functioning. It was unified. And family was being experienced. We hear at the end of this passage that that Joseph was mentioned, and yet he was an example of a spirit-filled man. And in fact, I enjoyed the scriptures when it says the, the apostles saw this and saw his generosity, and they decided to give him a brand new name and just nicknamed him Barnabas. Well, the problem for me is if I even shorten that more to Barney, I, I'm in trouble. Because I just, you know, it just the Barney today and maybe the Barney back then meant a whole lot of different things. But that's what it was. So there was great joy. And there were people like Barnabas that were meeting the needs of others who had lost their jobs and are struggling financially. You see, any time, and there's always glimpses of this in the Scripture, but any time someone is Spirit-filled, one of the marks of being Spirit-filled is that generosity seems to flow. You see, at least at this moment, the spirit-filled church functioned very differently than the temple, which they were very used to going to. The early church, its focus wasn't on required sacrifices or mandated offerings or the 10% tax or tithe. In this early church, God filled his people with his spirit and transformed their hearts, which resulted in the church responding with spontaneous generosity. They just gave. They knew nothing was their own. And we understand that, that God gives us everything. God gives us our talents. God gives us our times. Time. God gives us our treasures, everything. When somebody is part of God's family, recognize these things are not mine. They're they're all God's. They're all gifts from God. But let me just say this. Nothing could prepare the church for what happened next. I tried to paint an accurate picture for you. Things were good in spite of some of the hard things that were happening. But I want to say this, church. There is something very sobering about these next 11 verses. I think all of us, we need to pay attention here. In fact, as I was preparing this week and knew this was part of the text, I wrestled with God, and I think hour after hour, Lord, would you speak? Would none of these words be Rick's? Rick will screw this up. 
I, I'm really sure. Would you help us understand why you preserved this story? Why this was here? So let's wrestle with this text together. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we'll read the first two verses. But, okay, I gotta stop right there. Things are so good! But, but, how come there are buts in life? Whoa. How come? Wouldn't it just be grand? Uh, you know, the church is flourishing. Okay, they have a few little hard times, but, but realistically, they're together. God's working. People are coming to faith. But, but, but. Oh, I, I know I hammer on this sometimes, but if you have your Bibles and you mark your Bibles, I'd circle this one, circle the butt, highlight the butt, look at the butt, because, because this is a big deal, especially in the early church. And it's a big deal that we understand this. But, <laughs> I know some of you newer folks are going, well, this is as long as it takes for him to read a scripture. We're in big trouble. I'll go faster. But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's full consent, or with his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Ananias and his wife Sapphira tried to deceive the church and the leadership. So, well, okay, well, you know, you're going to see in just a little bit, there's nothing wrong with selling property and just actually giving part of it. There's nothing wrong with making a good living and just giving part of what God has graced you with. There's nothing wrong with that. But the problem here is that both Ananias and Sapphira saw the accolades that Joseph got. They wanted to make sure that the apostles knew they were just as generous. So they deceived, and they came up with a plan. Hey, we're going to sell the property. We'll keep back some, but we're going to make it look like we are just like Barnabas. In fact, maybe, maybe they'll give us a nickname. How cool is that? We get to walk into church, and not only is there Barnabas, but we're going to be renamed. <laughs> but Peter, Peter sensed the deception. Let's read verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. But how could you do such a thing like this? 
you weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, we'll stop there. Oh, how odd. Ananias and Sapphira just tried knowingly to deceive. Well, it was Peter and it was the church. But clearly, Peter saw it differently and so did God. He said, you first of all lied to the Spirit when you justified your actions. You also lied to a Spirit-filled leader in the church. Ultimately, you lied to the Almighty God. Peter, as we can see, was appalled by the action. He knew how sin not only hurts them, but hurts a purified church. Ananias was judged and buried, which showed God's judgment. Then Sapphira comes in, and Peter gives Sapphira a chance to maybe set the story straight. Verse 7, and about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this a price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the Spirit of the Lord like this? The young man who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Oh, my word. She didn't respond. Again, we look at this and it seems a little trivial in some ways to lose your life. God, God. And then look at verse 11. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what has happened. This is the first time the word church is actually used in the book of Acts. But to find it at the climax of this passage only heightens the seriousness of Ananias and Sapphira's sin and helps us understand the severity of this punishment. We are shocked by God's actions. Most, if not all, feel it's a bit harsh. It's severe. But let me say this. Maybe that says more about us than it says about God. You see, sin usually is less lethal to us than to God. We forget His holiness. We forget and don't understand that sin is an abomination to God. And God desires deeply not to 
make your life miserable, but to give you joy. And that obeying God brings joy and fulfillment to you and to me. We are grateful, if we're honest, that God hasn't recently killed anyone in our church for lying or going through the motions. But God's action is not so harsh if we understand how God feels about leadership and about sin. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to turn your Bibles over to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus is in the Older Testament. It's the second book of the Bible. And literally, you will find a little bit about God and his perspective way, way back hundreds of years before this text came. Now let me just give you the context. And most of you understand what happened in Genesis and even as Exodus, as, as we kind of creep into the book of Exodus. But, but let me remind you that Joseph came to power, power in Pharaoh's court. He saved the world because of the great famine and invited the family of Joseph, which eventually became the Israelites, to Egypt to live. They were fruitful and they multiplied and God blessed them. But after a while, there was a Pharaoh that grew up that didn't know about Joseph and how Joseph had just been an unbelievable influence in the history of Egypt. And so they begin to get worried about the growth, and they enslave the Israelites, and they made the Israelites miserable. God said he heard their cries and was going to send them a leader, a savior, Someone to lead them out of Egypt into a promised land. And his name was Moses. And so Moses was born and Moses was supernaturally protected. And Moses literally for the first 40 years of his life grew up in Pharaoh's court and experienced unbelievable blessing. Until one day when he saw his fellow Israelites being mistreated. He knew he was going to be a leader and, and he kind of took things in his own hands and, and he decided to kill this Egyptian. Well, the word spread and Moses had to run for his life. The next 40 years, Moses stayed in the desert as a shepherd. He knew about God. I believe this was a nurturing time for him until one day, one fine day, God directly spoke to Moses through a burning bush. It was so unusual. Moses went over there. He and God had a conversation. God was very clear. He said, Moses, I want you to lead my people out of their slavery. And Moses was reluctant. Moses didn't want to do it. But after God revealed his power and his authority, Moses looked at this and said, Okay, God, I'll be your leader. So Moses was ready. He was ready and he was going to go to Egypt and he was going to lead God's people out of 
slavery. Exodus chapter 4, verse 24. In fact, this was one of the readings in one of my groups that I meet with. And one of the guys just mentioned like, whoa, what's this text in here for? And I said, well, why don't you come on Sunday and you'll learn about it. So Exodus chapter 4. You can read with me if you want, but it's on the screen. On the way to Egypt, at a place where Moses and his family had stopped for the night, the Lord confronted him and was about to kill him. But Moses' wife, Zipporah, took a flint knife and circumcised her son. Now there's more to that story, and it gets into a little bit more explanation. But what I want to do is focus right here is, God was ready to kill Moses. After all that work, he had just, well, ministered and, 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 and used this in his life to chip away all the rough edges, or many of them. It was now time for Moses to lead. Moses was refined. Moses was obedient. Wasn't he? And he was going to Egypt. Problem was, he had not circumcised his sons. (laughs) Really? So God, again, is going to kill Moses because he didn't circumcise his sons. Well, again, it sounds harsh, except that was part of the covenant that he gave Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. So disobedience would have meant death here. But Zipporah knew, and Zipporah took over, and Zipporah obediently circumcised their sons. Oh, a more extreme example actually comes in Joshua chapter 7. And so many of you, again, know this story. But Joshua has just been given the leadership of Israel. Moses has died. And they had crossed the Jordan River. And they were going to occupy the promised land. And God said, I want you to listen to me. If you listen to me, I'll lead you in right ways and you will experience blessing. The first Well, test that happened was the town of Jericho, a large town. And God basically said this, I want you to listen to me. I'm going to give you this town. When you go in, the people that live in this town I have judged. And I want you to wipe them all out. And I want you also not to take anything in this town. You can take some precious metals, but you're going to put them into my treasury. So realistically, I'm going to work mightily. I'm going to give you an unbelievable victory, but I want you to listen to me. I do. If you don't listen to me, and you'll see this in chapter 6, you will be destroyed and the nation of Israel will be affected. Well, in chapter 7, we find out a man 
while they were in Jericho, while most were listening to God, saw a robe and saw some money and decided, you know what, I would like this material things. So he took it, the Bible says. As a result, at their next campaign, 36 men were killed and they were soundly defeated. Israel was at its wits. <laughs> what is going on? The bottom line is, is that God told them clearly, this is your responsibility. Now the hard part of this story is because Achan disobeyed. His sin was found out. Achan and his family were gathered. The children of Israel stoned them and burned their bodies. So, whoa, it seems harsh. But because of this man's sin, 36 families were without sons and husbands and fathers. God sees sin differently than we do. All in any sin is an abomination to God. The Holy Spirit today does confront and does convict believers of sin. God also uses a discerning spirit filled leader to confront and address sin in this case. You see, church leaders must act in the best interest of the church. They must, when it comes up, confront unrepentive sin. Ultimately, all of us must answer directly to God for our actions. But leaders are directly accountable, church leaders, for their actions and their words. I got to tell you, as I look back over my life, that nothing has shaken me up personally more than a reprimand or pumped my tires more than an encouragement from an elder or a pastor. You see, God raises up leaders in every church. And I would even ask you to respect and to pray for your elders who have been led here to lead. Now let's get back to the text. Great fear gripped all those outside the church. Now, one of the things I think each one of us need to learn is how to fear God better. We sometimes get really, really casual, but fearing God is critical. In Proverbs 14, 27, Solomon writes, The fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain. It offers escape from the snares of death. In Psalm 34, 11, the psalmist writes, come, my children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of God. It's something that's taught. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, at the end of Solomon's, I guess, 
writings of, of despair and trying to find meaning in life, he ends up just basically saying this. Here's my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commandments, for this is everyone's duty. Let's look at verse 12 of chapter 5. The apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. But no one else dared to join them. And even though all the people had high regard for them. In verse 14, this is a key verse, and I'm going to come back to this. Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord. Crowds of both men and women. As a result of the apostles' work, sick sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across them as they went by. Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those possessed by evil spirits, and they were all healed. After all this happened, after they experienced this judgment by God, and fear was spread all over. The next verse, all the believers met regularly at the temple. Nothing actually stopped for that original group. But the scriptures also tell us that no one publicly joined them. Even though God was adding to the flock, there was fear of some. But God was working, and the underground church was growing. In verse 14, it is so cool that God continued to add to the flock. Now let me just say this, because... Most of us, if we're following this text, we all want to be part of a church that is like Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. That's a great church. Lots of life, community happening. But how many of us want to be part of a church like Acts chapter 5? Where these people, even after this happened, were drawn to an authentic church. A pure church where people are accountable for their sin because they understand that sin not only hurts them but hurts the whole church. The early church was both family and pure at this time and it grew. Let's look what happens in verse 17. The high priest and his officials, who were Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles, put them in a public jail. But, how cool is this, but, an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail, and brought them out, and then told them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple when they were told, as they were told, and immediately began teaching. I don't know. This feels a little bit like Groundhog Day to me. You know? I mean, this just had happened. God was doing an amazing work. People were coming to faith. But the Sadducees, again, the power group, they were jealous and arrested the apostles. It sounds like all of them now. Not just Peter and John like it was before. 
But this time, God chooses to supernaturally rescue them, give them a private message, and says, keep doing what you're doing. The council meets the next day. They send for the guys. Nobody's there. They're confused. They hear that these same guys are preaching. They arrest them and bring them to court. It was at this time again. They're going like, what's going on, you guys? Why are you preaching? We've told you over and over and over and over again. Stop preaching about the resurrection. Stop preaching about Jesus. Stop preaching and giving these words of life. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. Now again, doesn't this ignite you? The good guys seem to be standing up. Peter was bold and says our authority is, well, I'm sorry, God. That's it. We must obey God. You see, these apostles had seen God work. They had just been delivered. They were in prison. An angel came. They just saw this. They did. They heard from God. God says, you're doing well. Go keep preaching. Now the council was furious at this moment. Now they had seen all the miracles. They had heard the power of the preaching. They are resisting. They're digging their heels in. And the scriptures tell us they decide to kill these guys. But one of the rabbis speak up. His name was Gamaliel. In Acts chapter 5, verse 38, he gives this advice. Verse 38. So my advice is this, Gamaliel says. Leave these men alone. Let them go. If they're planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it's from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. And we say, great advice. Well, in some ways it was. It, it was. But I also want you to say, it wasn't. Because what Gamaliel was really saying is, hey, if things go well, then God must be in it. And that's a lie, folks. I just want you to know, that's a lie that the enemy uses all the time in our life. What do you mean I have cancer? This is not making sense. God, I thought you were going to bless me. Gamaliel had bought into the culture. Realistically, if things go good for you, God must be with it. And if things don't go good for you, God must not be in it. Well, the truth is, the apostles already knew that wasn't true. 
But part of what he said is, if, if God's going to be behind it, isn't this cool? You can't stop it. I, I just want you to know. So this ignorant rabbi actually gave great truth. I just want you to know, God's work can't be thwarted. You can't stop God and his work. Now, it seemed wise, as I said, they sort of listened, and they had the apostles flogged. To us, it may not seem much. But let me just remind you, when the Bible talks about flogging, it's not just a, a tap on the rump. It is usually 39 lashes. 40 lashes were supposed to kill people. So 39 lashes was merciful. <laughs> So hey, let's just, you know, beat the tar out of these guys. Maybe they'll listen this time and we'll send them back. Now look in Acts chapter 5 starting at verse 41. This is so amazing to me. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple, and every day from house to house, they continued to teach and preach the message that Jesus is the Messiah. In spite of the beating, the apostles left rejoicing. They were happy to suffer, honored to be counted worthy. And we just have to ask the question, how is this possible? How is that possible? It was not just a light reprimand. They'd already been, some of them, in prison twice. They'd been told by the greatest power and authority of the land... Don't talk anymore. But on the other hand, they knew God said to talk. They saw life transformation. They saw the Spirit working. They saw people who were dead come to life. They could not stop what God was doing in their midst. So what does suffering do? It doesn't stop them. It basically ignites them. It ignited their faith. It gave the community opportunity to come together. And I just again have to ask myself, I bristle at any time of inconvenience or suffering. I don't have this same attitude. Now, granted, I might not have been beat 39 times. But really, how quickly do we, do I complain when things aren't convenient in the kingdom? This community became stronger how exciting. They continued to meet. They met in the temple 
That's where the big, large teaching was happening. We've already heard this in Solomon's colonnade. So they kept meeting there. They were being fed. And they also met, look at this, home or home to home or house to house. They met in homes. Their pattern was to meet together in large groups and in small groups where they boldly proclaimed that the Messiah had come, the long-awaited Savior. This was good news, especially to their audience. You know, I had to believe at this moment, especially the apostles remembered what Jesus told them in Luke chapter 10. Because Jesus sat down these apostles, back then disciples, and he knew as they were going to send them off, he wanted to warn them. It's a key part in Luke chapter 10 where literally he's preparing his disciples to do a work without Jesus. He had trained them. He had watched them. Now he was going to send them out by themselves. And in Luke chapter 10, as he's preparing these guys to go out, he says, I just want to warn you. I don't know if he sat them down. I don't know if he put his arm around them. But he said this, when you go out, you're going to be hated you are going to feel like you're sheep among wolves. Now, I just want to stop right there. I, I'm not a sheep, and I've never been among wolves, but my guess is that's really uncomfortable. Sheep can't defend themselves, and wolves, they're really good at eating sheep. But that's the illustration that Jesus gave. I want you to know this ministry stuff is going to be hard. And I also want you to know I'm going to give you the words you need. <laughs> I'll tell you, as I look at this text, there is so much to learn here. You see, Ananias and Sapphira's death demanded a respectful awe for the holiness and the power of God. This terrible incident served as a wake-up call for the church, a sobering shock back to reality. You see, everything within the church had been going smoothly, almost ideally. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira reminded the church that Christians aren't immune to sin. That people can receive the Holy Spirit in salvation without yielding to his power and sanctification. They can appear one way on the outside while harboring sin on the inside. The church also learned that God's grace doesn't make him soft on sin. He is still a holy and a righteous God who deals harshly with rebellion. I'm reminded that when I fear God, I change the way I think and act. 
I especially notice as I grow in the fear of God that it's noticeable in relationships. Because if I fear, if I respect God, if I know God is king, if I know God is in charge, then I don't have to make things right. I can forgive people that don't deserve being forgiven. I can love people that don't deserve to be loved. I can be kind to those that don't deserve to be kind because that's what God has asked me to do. And he's going to take care of all the other issues in my life. You see, being controlled by the Spirit means power and boldness. And this adventure that we've been studying will continue next week. Now, i got to say this, that I sense some extremely spirited discussions in our groups this week. Once we get our, our uh, weekly walks, be able to, well, talk about who God is and what our mission is all about. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you so much for your grace. I thank you so much for your example. God, you do confuse me. You confuse us. But God, you desire so deeply, so deeply, that we would live lives that would be full and abundant. The Spirit makes such a difference as we walk by means of the Spirit. There's joy in spite of circumstances. There's boldness as we share with others the good news and the words of life. Oh God, change me. Change us. In Jesus' name.